All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. While you're turning there, I want to just pique your imagination for just a moment, if you will. I want you just to imagine a scenario where you find yourself dug in in the middle of an intense war going on around you. You find yourself in the trenches and rounds are zipping past your head by the minute. You and your squad are pinned down deep behind enemy lines. You've already been a part of multiple battles in which you have lost. And as you find yourself in that scenario, you would probably think to yourself, I feel somewhat defeated here. Why fight on? Why continue to be a part of this war? But what if in that same scenario, you, you knew you had some type of supernatural knowledge of the future, and you knew without a shadow of a doubt that that war would spell victory for your side, even if that means that you and your squad may die along the way. If you knew that the, the, the outcome of that war would be victory for your side, would that not give you courage and confidence to dig your heels into the sand, to link arms with your brothers, and to fight and wage this war until you could fight no more? This is what we are going to see in Revelation 12 this morning. John paints this picture of a cosmic spiritual war that began at the fall. And it continues until Christ returns again. And in the midst of this cosmic war, it may seem like God's people are losing battle after battle after battle. But the Lord's people can take heart this morning and they can be confident that the war has already been won by Christ on the cross. So if you're someone who likes to take notes or you just like to have a general idea of where we're going, then the main point of the sermon this morning is this. Satan will wage war on the saints, but they will conquer by the blood of the Lamb And the word of their testimony. Satan will wage war on the saints, but they will conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. This morning, I want to spend some time unpacking the first six verses of Revelation 12 as John introduces to us two great signs. And after we spend some time unpacking these two signs, uh, I want to spend the rest of our time examining two truths found in this text that lay the foundation for the remainder of the vision we will see next week. So I'm going to read Revelation 12, I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in. Revelation 12, starting in verse 1, the word of the Lord says this, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and she was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon 
with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Verse 7, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and the angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, church don't miss this, and they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, would you be magnified and glorified this morning? God, would you be treasured and cherished in such a way that as my brothers and sisters and I link arms in heaven one day, that we would look to each other and we would say, that is the Jesus that was preached at Pillar Church of Washington, D.C. There would be no surprise, no no shock as we gaze upon the face of Jesus in heaven one day because, God, I pray that you would be exalted and treasured here on earth amongst your people. God, use your word this morning to save any who do not know you. If there are any who do not have a who have not placed their faith and their trust in you, God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And God, for those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, God, I pray that today you would uh, build up and edify your church by the truth of your word. Jesus, we, we love you, we praise you, we treasure you, and we pray all of these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. 
Point number one, the two great signs. The two great signs. Now, before we unpack these first six verses, we have to be on a a level playing field here, and we have to understand that these signs are not to be interpreted literally. You know, John is not standing on the island of Patmos writing these and, and, and telling the future church to, that one day we're going to walk out of these doors and look up in the heavens and see a woman who is pregnant and a great red dragon. That's not what John is getting at here. Instead, these signs are meant to point our attention to what the sign is directing us towards. Look with me at verse 1. John writes, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. In verse 2, she was pregnant. She was crying out in the pains and the agony of giving birth. So as John introduces this vision to us, he, he, he points out the first great sign, and he points to this majestic woman who was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, wearing a crown that has 12 stars on it. And he points out that she is, she's in labor, she's pregnant in the pains of soon to, in the pains, uh, soon to be giving birth. And so as we read a text like this, the question we must ask ourselves is this, who is the woman? Who is this woman? For years, scholars and commentators have been debating on who the woman represents. Some argue that the woman in view in Revelation 12 is ethnic Israel, Old Testament ethnic Israel. Some argue that the woman in view is the New Testament church. Others argue that this woman represents Mary, the mother of Jesus. And while I see where those different interpretations can come from and how you can land on those conclusions, I would simply argue that the woman in view here is a combination of all of those interpretations. I believe that the woman John is picturing in Revelation 12 represents the totality of God's covenant people. The woman represents the totality of God's covenant people including both the Old Testament and New Testament saints, those who believed in the Messiah. Notice the language John uses to describe the woman. In verse 2, John says that she's pregnant and she's crying out in the pains of birth. Now, as is common throughout the entire book of Revelation, John recalls the Old Testament to describe the vision that he was seeing. And in the Old Testament, it often pictures Israel as as a woman who is pregnant, who is in the pains of birth, longing for their Messiah to come and redeem them. And this is clearest in the writings of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 26, 17, and 18 say this. Like a woman, like a pregnant woman, who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. As Isaiah writes this, he he writes describing Israel while in exile. And he writes describing their, their 
in their, their desire for their Messiah to come and rescue them. And so because John pictures this woman as being pregnant and in labor, Old Testament Israel must be in view here. But in verse 6 and later in this chapter, John mentions that the woman flees into the wilderness where a place is prepared for her after Jesus has been crucified. Meaning that the New Testament church must also be in view here. And so because of both of these things, because of John's depiction of the woman being pregnant and because of her depiction as fleeing into the wilderness where she is nourished and protected by God after Jesus is crucified, I believe that the woman in the first great sign is the totality of God's covenant community. Those who remain faithful to him past, present, and future all the way until Christ returns. John then follows this first great sign with another. In verse 3, John says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven horns and with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Now, this second sign it lacks little debate on who or what it represents. If you look down in verse 9, John explicitly tells us that uh, this dragon, or as he calls the ancient serpent, recalling Genesis 3, this dragon and this ancient serpent is the devil or, or Satan. Notice the way in which John describes the dragon. First, this dragon is mentioned as being red, or depending on your translation, some may say bright red pointing to the fact that this dragon is stained with the blood of the saints that have been physically slain by the dragon's murderous intent. And then it is mentioned as having seven heads, symbolizing its resemblance to perfection and completeness. Then the dragon is said to have ten horns. Horns in the scriptures are often meant to depict power. And so this dragon has intense and oppressive power. And lastly, it is crowned with seven diadems or seven crowns, symbolizing Satan's false claims of sovereignty and his tenacious desire for universal authority. You see, for all intents and purposes, the dragon is a seemingly formidable foe, he has murderous intent. He appears perfect and complete. He has intense, oppressive power. And he has a hunger for universal sovereignty. Friends, we must not gloss over this. You see, Satan, I'm afraid that often our view of Satan is skewed by pop culture and previous generations' depiction in art of what Satan looks like. You know, Satan is not this this red-hoofed caricature that that runs around beneath the surface of the earth in the flames. That's not who Satan is in the Bible. In John 12, verses 30 and 31, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Here in Revelation 12, John calls Satan the accuser and the deceiver of the world. You see, I'm afraid we often don't like to talk about Satan because we really don't know that much about Satan. 
And I'm fearful that for the average Christian who doesn't really know that much about Satan, I'm afraid that person views Satan as you know, he's out of sight and therefore he's seemingly out of mind. Friends, understand that Satan wants nothing more than to steal, to kill, and to destroy you. That is Satan's intent. This is not the NFL draft where Satan wants to use one of his lottery picks on you. He doesn't doesn't just desire for you to be a part of his team. He doesn't care if you're with him or not. Satan wants nothing more than the pinnacle of God's creation. Man made in his image. Satan wants man to spend eternity separated and away from the Lord. That is Satan's intent. And this leads us to our second point. Satan will wage war on the saints. Satan will wage war on the saints. Look with me at verses 7, 8, and 9. John writes, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, verse 7 is a really interesting verse. Uh, It it is a depiction of the cosmic spiritual war that is being waged between God's people on one side with Michael, the archangel, leading the charge. And I just want to put up a small caveat here. I I wish we had time to unpack why Michael is mentioned as leading the charge. Uh, We don't have time in in the sermon, but if you want to to look up context for cross-reference, check out Daniel 10 and Daniel uh, 12. They'll give you some context as to why Michael is mentioned leading the charge on behalf of God's people. But in verse 7, there's there's the depiction of the cosmic war between God's people on one side, Michael leading the charge, and on the other side we see Satan as the dragon with his angels that are waging war. And this war begins at the fall and it carries on throughout human history. But there is a decisive and distinct blow that is made against the dragon and his army. Look with me at verse 10. John says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night Before our God. You see, the event that caused Satan to be cast down to earth was Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and his ultimate ascension. That was the decisive blow that was made against the dragon. Jesus says this himself in John 12, 31 and 32. Now, Jesus says, is the judgment of this world. Now, will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. 
understand this picture here. As Jesus, after his life, death, burial, and resurrection, as he's preparing to ascend in all of his majesty and glory and might, he ascends into heaven and Satan in his filth and disgust is cast out of heaven. That is a beautiful truth for us to understand today. You see, when Satan was cast out of heaven, his nature didn't change. His authority changed. Before Jesus' ascension, Satan had the authority to go before the throne of God and bring accusation against God's people. We see this reality explicitly in Zechariah 3, verses 1 and 2. Listen to the words of the prophet. He says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Catch this, Satan was standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So before Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, Satan had the authority to stand before the throne of God and accuse God's people. It's the very thing John says that is Satan's nature. But when Christ was crucified and the salvation of God's people was accomplished, the accuser and the deceiver of this world was cast out and no longer had an audience before the throne of God. He could no longer bring accusations against God's people. Since Jesus has ascended and taken his rightful place on the throne, Satan's accusations have been emptied of their power. And church, that is good news for us today. A decisive blow has been made against Satan. But he continues to wage war on the saints. Look with me at verse 13. John writes, And now the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth. And he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. G.K. Beale, who is a scholar on Revelation, he writes this, saying, quote, Christians can be assured that the serpent begins to battle against their bodies only after he has lost the battle for their souls. I'll say that again. Christians can be assured that the serpent begins to battle against their bodies only after he has lost the battle over their souls. After Satan realizes his authority has been stripped and he can no longer bring a charge against God's elect, He reverts to the only thing that he knows how to do. Waging war on God's people. Now, Satan will often turn to a number of tactics to pursue and wage war against God's people. And if I could preach a thousand sermons, I would never cover all of the ways in which Satan, uh, his tactics that he uses to pursue and wage war on the saints. But I simply want to submit to you a few that I believe would be really practical for us to grasp today. Uh, if, you're, if you're single, and, and in particular I'm addressing my single brothers here, uh, Satan will often try and wage war against you by dangling deceptive images in front of you on your phone and leading you down the rabbit hole of things like pornography. You see, Satan would love nothing more than to distort the biblical view of sex and sexuality so that your image of marriage is tarred forever. 
If you're married, Satan will often try and wage war against you by pitting you and your spouse against one another. You see, when a, when a, a co-worker or a friend lashes out at you in anger, it, it hurts, it stings, it is what it is, you kind of move on. But when a spouse, someone you have covenanted together in marriage with, to spend the rest of your life together with, when that spouse lashes out against you in anger, it hurts. It's harmful. Marriage is a beautiful picture of the gospel. And Satan will do everything he can to tarnish it. If you're a parent, Satan will often try and wage war against you by pitting you against your children. Satan would love nothing more than for you to lash out at your children in anger when they are disobedient or disrespectful. Or for you to harbor bitter feelings when they have wronged you in some way. Satan would love for our children to have a poor view of our heavenly father because of the way our earthly father or mother has treated them. Parents, don't be afraid to apologize to your children. Care for them by loving them even when you are wrong. Satan will also often turn to physical torment as a way to wage war on the saints. I'm not going to dive into that too much today because we're going to spend some time talking about it next week as Jared walks us through the vision of the the beast and the false prophet. But just know that Satan would love to see God's people physically crushed, even unto death. He would love for the lives of the saints to be slain. This leads us to our third point. Point number three, the saints will conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The saints will conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. John writes, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Though Satan wages intense war against the Lord's people, we can rest assured in confidence this morning that this war being waged is not a sign of Satan's victory, but of Christ's victory. And His people share in His victory as they share in His suffering. John tells us that the saints conquer Satan because of the blood of the Lamb that was slain on the cross And because of their testimony about that slain lamb. I want us to notice this morning that nowhere is the power of God's people ever mentioned as a means for conquering Satan or outlasting the schemes of the enemy. The woman who flees into the wilderness cannot muster up enough strength on her own to outlast the schemes of the dragon. It is only by the blood of Christ that was shed at Calvary that makes victory over Satan possible for God's people. 
The scriptures make it crystal clear that humanity is totally depraved. You and I have a a sinful nature that from the moment we are born, we are bent towards sin. We have a lot of uh, young families in here with, with young children. You probably don't have to teach your children to sin. They know how to do that already. And it took Christ stepping off the throne, taking on a nature of humanity, being born of the virgin. It took Christ living the perfect and sinless life that you and I should have lived, but couldn't because of our sin. It took Christ being crucified on the cross, taking the the death on our place that we should have received. And it took Christ being buried and raised to life and ascending to take His place on the throne where He sits today. It took that miraculous work of Jesus on the cross to make conquering Satan possible for God's people. And so friends, I want to plead with you that if you have not placed your, your trust and your hope in Christ this morning, that you would do so today. That today would be the day of salvation for you. Stop leaning on your own understanding. Stop leaning on your own wisdom or your own good works to be enough to conquer the schemes of Satan. It is only by the blood of the Lamb that someone is saved. So please, if that is you, I plead with you, come find me after the service. I'll be through those double doors. I would love to talk to you about what it looks like to follow Jesus. But for those of us who are already in Christ... For those of us who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, we must understand that this does not mean that we graduate from the Gospel. We don't simply check that spiritual box and then move on to the next thing. You and I need the Gospel daily. Satan is conquered by the salvation that is given to those who were washed by the blood of the Lamb. And the word tells us that Satan is conquered by those who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb, or when those who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb go out and share that salvation with others. This means that we must be consistently sharing the gospel with those around us. We had an evangelism training yesterday, and I was just really encouraged by the amount of people that that turned up and uh, just wanted to grow and learn more about what it looks like to share their faith and to be equipped to share their faith. Friends, we meet in a neighborhood. Our church is situated in the middle of a neighborhood that often despises the gospel. So join us in events like Gospel and Grub. We are regularly going out in our city or in our neighborhood throughout the month going and sharing the gospel with our neighbors. So join us as we contend for the souls of those in our neighborhood together. But even more so than that, every single one of us knows someone who does not know Jesus. And each one of us has been gifted in unique and specific ways. So take those giftings that the Lord has given you and live your life for the sake of the gospel. Being a missionary right where God has you right now. For example, if you like to bake, if you're just a great cook or you love to bake, pull out your best recipe, whip it up, and then go give it to your neighbor just, and just so that you can serve them. You don't have to have some special occasion to do something like that. And I promise you, if you, were to, if you love to cook or love to bake, and you made something for your neighbor and just took it over to them, they would be 
very open to a conversation with you after that. If you love to run, all power to you. We were just talking about we, we were just talking about a, a 5K in the back before the uh, before the service started, and I was thinking to myself, probably not going to be me, but uh, unless I'm leading the walking portion of the 5K. But if you love to to run or to exercise, join your local neighborhood Facebook group and and post in that and just tell people, hey, I want to meet up at Lincoln Park this afternoon at at 2 p.m. Does anyone want to join me and we'll go run? Like. Friends, sharing the gospel and living on mission doesn't have to be complicated. We don't have to wait for the church to start all of these events so then we can go and share the gospel. God has gifted us in unique and specific ways. Use those giftings and those talents to live your life on on mission. While I think there are some who are called to go overseas and, and praise God for those people, We don't have to go overseas to be a missionary. We can make Christ known right where God has us now. And as you think about ways in which you can serve those around you who do not know Jesus, know that as you make Christ known, Satan cannot bring an accusation against you. Those accusations have been forever silenced. So take courage and find boldness in that truth as you live your life for the sake of the gospel, church. This cosmic war will continue to wage on until Christ returns. And we know from the promises of Scripture that God's people will be persecuted along the way. But through it all, the Lord provides for and sustains His people. John tells us in verse 14 that the Lord mounts His people on the wings of the great eagle and He guides them into the wilderness where there is a place prepared for them. As John often does throughout Revelation, he recalls an account in the story of the Exodus and he applies it to the last days. As Israel was fleeing the captivity of Egypt, the Lord sustained them in the Exodus through the, or with the water from the rock that was stricken. Today, as the church is sojourning in the wilderness of the last days, the Lord is sustaining her with the living water by the rock of Christ that was stricken. As Israel was wandering in the wilderness, they were given the, the manna, the bread from heaven, and it sustained their lives and it gave them life. Friends, the church today was given the bread of life, namely Christ, our Messiah. And He provides for and sustains the life of the church as we await our Savior to return. So I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come back up. And while they're, they're coming up, uh, we're going to transition into a time of uh, just preparing our hearts for, uh, to take the Lord's Supper. So that's how we're going to respond to the message this morning. And so the Lord's Supper is a fellowship meal for baptized believers. The Lord's Supper is how we recognize one another as fellow Christians. And like baptism, it distinguishes between those who are in the church and those who are not. The difference being that baptism happens once at the beginning of the life of the Christian, or the Christian walk. And the Lord's Supper is a regular practice that we do throughout our walk with Christ. And so I I need us to, to listen intently here because this is important. 
This meal is only for those, the Lord's Supper is only for those who are trusting in Christ for their salvation, those who have been baptized, and those who are not living in unrepentant sin. I want to say that again because it's not that we check one or two of those boxes, it's all three of those things. The Lord's Supper is for those who are trusting in Christ's death and resurrection for their salvation and who have been baptized and who are not living in unrepentant sin. And so if you are a member of this church or another church, you are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper. If you are not taking the Lord's Supper today, or if that is not you, if you can't say with, without a shadow of a doubt that you are trusting in the Lord for salvation, that you've been baptized as a believer, and that you are not walking in unrepentant sin, if you can't say that you affirm those three things, I would ask you, the most important thing you could do today is not come and take the supper. Take Jesus. Amen, Repent of your sin. And trust in Jesus and proclaim that decision through believer's baptism. If that's you, again, come find me after the service. I would love to talk to you about what it looks like to follow Christ. But for those of us who are taking the Lord's Supper, I don't want us to miss this significance. The Lord's Supper symbolizes that Satan has been conquered by the blood of the slain lamb. And we, as God's people, have the joy of participating in that victory with Christ. And so I'm going to pause for just a moment and give us some time to reflect on the victory of Christ and what that means for us today. So take some time to praise God for the salvation that he has given you, or if you need to take this time, repent of unrepented sin.